This week was just brutal. I could not get myself to write this chapter. I actually felt proactive at first, not waiting until the day before to bang out number 19. But every time I'd lift the lid on this laptop, I'd type a few words, grimace, mentally berate myself, look out the window, then walk away. Thursday, Friday, over the weekend, and then here I am on the last day finishing up. To my credit, I've had family visiting us here in Costa Rica, and there was a birthday to deal with, something I've grown to lament more than celebrate as the years pass. But those, those aren't excuses. I've got the time to write. Side note, the new world of the digital nomad, something we very much are now, is wonderful in concept. Check out all this freedom I have, this free time. I am the boss of my own destiny. Yet, when you get here, you end up busying yourself with that freedom. All of that free time you've been blessed with becomes the excuse for not actually getting anything done. So there is something to be said for structure. But hey, maybe that's a concept for a future self-deprecating introduction. Anyway, it wasn't until I got this chapter finished, then set about to write this introduction, that I realized I wasn't having a hard time with the chapter itself because I didn't have anything to say, but because I've been seeing that the end is near. And this brings us, this short walk down a long pier, to my question. When do we know that it is time to end something? When do we know that a story, fictional or our own, is drawing to a close? I've gone through a divorce, I've lost jobs, and I've burned enough bridges to know, in hindsight, that there are always signs. If you're paying attention, you'll see that the proverbial writing is on the wall. And when the dust settles, you ask yourself, did I do enough? How could I have stopped this? What was my part? Maybe it's because I'm getting older, my own mortality ever-present because of this recent birthday, but I often descend into that horrible waiting pool of regret. I consider my culpability. That if I would have done this or hadn't done that, maybe that story wouldn't have ended when or how it did. But on the converse, imagine that we fix our mistakes. We clean our side of the street and are able to delay the end. What if we force a story to continue beyond where it was destined to? Coincidentally, just a few minutes ago, my mother walked into the room and asked what I was watching. Of course, I've got a muted Friday the 13th sequel on the television. I paused, you know, to chat about the ridiculous facial expressions and the overacting of the characters on the screen. And then she finally asked me, gosh, how many of these movies are there? Over a dozen. Jason has been shot, burned, stabbed, hung, and exploded. He's gone to Manhattan, hell, and space. So did they go too far? Should we remember Jason not as a cartoonish immortal, but as the boy who tragically drowned in Crystal Lake? So what am I talking about? What's the thesis of this meandering, unfocused mini-essay? Well, the season's got to come to a close soon. I don't know how or when. Could be one more chapter or a handful. But I can only put my characters through so much punishment. If they live or die will be as much of a surprise to them as it will be to me and to all of you out there listening once we all get there. And that's just it. Do we want to know when the end has come, or would we rather be surprised by it? And real quick, I've been trying to find a clever way to mention some of you awesome folks in these intros lately, but it just wasn't happening today, so I'm going to go for it here. Here's a bunch of old punk kid love to Dawn of the Dead and his Misfits tribute band 138. Then a huge shout out 
to Mojo0905, Brujita Chiquita, and Lauren Barkley for the warm and just wonderful reviews. I am totally humbled by your words. Thank you. And now, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, the doctor is in, and the haunt is on. Chapter 19 Through the large windows of the bridge, Donnie Fredericks could see, even with the storm raging, that the eastern sky had begun to brighten. The time was at hand. Despite his mind being torn in multiple directions, from the theft of the master's visage to annoying cockroaches scurrying around on the stateroom levels, he was thinking about how far he had come. The morning before the Baroness had departed, Donnie Fredericks had held one final meeting, a call to prayer. He and his inner circle commanded one of the meeting rooms at the seaside Best Western Resort. With a stone totem, the draw of its inner power stronger than ever, stationed before him at the head of a long conference table, they'd gone over the plan once more. This was, of course, muscle memory, as they knew their parts as if they'd been born to play them. Still, they ran through the hows, the whos, and the whens. Who was in charge of destroying the radio equipment, when to activate the signal blockers that had been secretly installed throughout the ship, when to kill the captain, how to take over the engine room, who to dispose of first. The followers had been able to influence most of the crew choices, who could either be brought over to their side or dispatched quickly, when to make those choices once they were at sea, and then how to deal with the rest. They also reviewed the passenger manifest, feeling good about the crop they'd been left with, after whittling down the names through convenient technical errors or payment glitches. The leftovers, those who couldn't be removed through their normal means, were assigned a familiar. Planted guests at assigned dinner tables or neighboring staterooms who could influence, subtly implant suggestions that would eventually get the number of souls to a more manageable level. They were to sow the seeds, to pick at the wounds within marriages, the resentments between friends. And so far, everything had gone according to plan. Mostly. Now, five days later, of the 419 souls that had set sail with the Baroness, less than 90 were still aboard. And alive. Jason, a lowly employee of a tech startup, the sort of company that thought a retreat aboard a transatlantic cruise would be the bonding experience they'd all been looking for, went to all 11 of his co-workers' rooms, complained of insomnia, and asked for medicinal help. When invited in, Jason bludgeoned each of them to death with a meat tenderizer he'd held behind his back. When the whole company was all but erased, he typed out an email that would languish in his outbox, punched the stateroom mirror, then hung himself with his own twisted bedsheets. Gabrielle, Gabby to her friends and family, had always dreamed of a destination wedding. Ever since she was old enough to understand what sort of memories an event like that would produce. With enough family money to create whatever perfection she wanted, all she needed to do was find the man she'd eventually meet at that end of the aisle. Scott came into her life late last year, and all the pieces aligned. And even better, why fly to the castle she'd booked for the ceremony, 
when her bachelorette party could be a part of that journey. When her three closest friends drug her out of bed, lifted her kicking and screaming body, and tossed her over the railing, all Gabby could think about was how her father had paid for all this, how ungrateful her friends were, and that she would return to haunt whichever one of them ended up with her fiancé. Wives had poisoned husbands. Husbands smothered or strangled their wives. Drunken friends got into fistfights, breaking noses and necks. Knives were slipped into handbags in the pockets of sport coats to be used in the middle of the night. There had been crucifixions. It was exactly the sort of controlled chaos he craved. The type of hatred, manipulation, and violence that could rouse him from his eternal slumber. This is what an ancient god expected. And on the subject of expectations, what Donnie Fredericks hadn't foreseen was that Sophia's douchebag of a husband would have taken the idol. Not that he believed this would change anything. The stone carving was, Donnie thought, more of a, a symbol, a beacon, some burning light that served to bring him and the other death's head moths together. He, beneath the sea, the world destroyer, would rise with or without some measly imitation of him. But still, Donnie felt like a piece of himself had been stolen. So, he would make an example of Laszlo Bathory. And Zofia, too. Sure, he'd grown to care about the woman. Ever since they'd met, all those months before. The illicit late-night calls, chat-room discussions. Bringing her into this world of his. Donnie felt sure that they would be the recreators of this earth the Adam and Eve to a new world gripped tightly by the tentacled embrace of the one true God. But it wasn't to be. After all of her promises, all of her assurances, the woman simply couldn't get her husband to bend, to cross the line. She wasn't worthy to be by Donnie's side when the master breached the waves. No, he was back to basics. Like he'd been in that alleyway, feeling the weight of the totem in each of his hands, called to something larger. It was he, Donnie, who was destined for greatness, to usher in a new era, not they. There was no they. And as Donnie studied the carnage, the watery bloodshed displayed on the Lido deck below him, he thought about how he would offer this new blessed sacrifice, and he smiled. At the same time, a handful of levels under his feet, a volley of gunfire had just erupted. Barricaded by a mattress and dresser behind the door of room 294, a pair of friends, college football teammates and recent lovers, were finishing the scraps of room service and dregs of warm, stale beer when they heard the shots. Across the hall from them, a man lay next to the body of his wife, now cold and stiff, two days removed from her intentional overdose, hoping that the pills he'd just swallowed would overtake him soon. His eyes opened when the firing began, but otherwise the man didn't stir. In room 278, as the shots rang out, the three brideless bridesmaids were once again going over their collective story so they could get away with murder once they'd been rescued and the investigations began. Finally, in room 208, Carolyn Hooper, the librarian from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, instinctually leapt from the edge of the bed and rushed toward the door. She was caught from behind by Teresa, 
The older woman gripped Carolyn's midsection and the hand reaching for the door. Teresa shouted, no, wait. Carolyn thrashed, but was held tight by the motherly strength of a woman who was in full-on protection mode. What are you doing? Greg's out there, Carolyn yelled back and thought, your husband is too. We gotta go. But still, they remained rigid, inches from the door handle, until one, two minutes after the final gunshot, when Teresa loosened her grip. Carolyn wrenched open the door and first peered left. Two unmoving bodies lay at the end of the hallway, one slumped against the wall, while the other was half in the stairwell, as if they'd been shot coming through the doorway and crumpled in place. Spatter and bloodied handprints graffitied the surrounding wallpaper. When she looked the other direction, she saw another two men, one stooped over the other. Without hesitation, Carolyn rushed to meet them. As she approached, she saw Chad, the man she'd sort of grown to see as an impromptu grandfather, pressing down onto Greg's midsection. Carolyn dropped to her knees, feeling the wet carpet squish beneath her, and took over for Chad, placing both hands on the ragged hole in Greg's stomach. The man groaned, then choked out, They shot me! I can't fucking believe this! I'm gonna die in a, on a cruise ship! Carolyn was repeating, Oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, as she felt Greg's blood bubbling, seeping through her fingers, and her mind was spinning. Five days ago, I didn't know this man existed. I had no intention of hooking up with anyone on this cruise, let alone developing feelings. And just like that, he's dying in my arms right here. No, you aren't going to die, Chad said. But we all might if we don't get out of this hallway. This is a bottleneck. When they come back, we might not be so lucky. Chad, you're bleeding, Teresa said. And Carolyn saw red staining the man's leg just above the knee. They just winged me. I'm okay. Let's get him back to the room. Carolyn let go of the wound long enough to put Greg's own hand on it, then began to lift him. Chad and Teresa helped, and as Greg howled, they started toward the door where Marie was waiting. Chad dug out his keycard and said, Teresa, go to our room. Get your pills. There'll be something in there for the pain. And grab some of those little vodka bottles, too. As they laid Greg on the bed, Marie said, First Austin, now this. What happened? They came out shooting. I guess they're done with the little mind games, Chad said. He was pulling up Greg's shirt and examining him. Carolyn brought towels out from the bathroom and Chad switched out the makeshift bandages. I got two of them. Third got away. Marie, can you dig around over there? Maybe in the desk? See if you can find a map or a blueprint? Figure out where the infirmary is? Carolyn was just sitting down on the bed when Teresa came back. In one hand, she held a toiletry purse and the requested liquor, and the stone totem in the other. Chad took both from her, set the statue on the nightstand, then rifled through the small bag. He shook out two pills from the one of the bottles and asked Carolyn to hand him some water. Okay, he said. Good news. Looks like the bullet went straight through, so we don't have to worry about digging that out. Hearing this, Greg moaned, writhed in the tangled sheets. Carolyn kept the pressure. But we're going to have to get that wound dressed, closed up. The ship's infirmary are going to have what you need. Where is it? What do you need me to go get? Carolyn said. Not so fast. Like I said, I didn't get all three of them. That last one got away. Chad grabbed a corner of the comforter, twisted a small knot, then told Greg, Bite this. Carolyn let Chad push her bloody hands aside, watched him crack open the mini liquor bottle, then pour. Greg's scream echoed in the stateroom and in Carolyn's head. After patting the area dry, 
Chad secured another clean towel into Greg's midsection and brought Carolyn's hands back into position. Marie approached the bed, a laminated spiral-bound directory in her hands. There are two infirmaries on board, one's on the service level, below those closed-off floors, near the bow, and then there's a satellite location on the Lido deck. Of course, Chad said, shaking his head. So what are we going to do? Teresa asked. Both her and Marie stood at the foot of the bed. We have to get him to the stitches, or we got to get those stitches back here to him. I'm thinking we go with option B. The elevators are out, so either you're helping him up two flights of stairs or down five or six. But there's a ticking clock. Old Donnie isn't going to be happy that I took out two of his guys. So they'll be coming. Chadwick, you're talking in circles. What are you saying? I'm saying that we need a distraction, Chad said. Something to draw them away from this level. How are we going to do that? Carolyn asked. I mean, how long does he have? He's going to be fine as long as you keep that pressure. As for the distraction, Chad said. And then he lifted the stone totem. Lazy wanted us to find this. This is obviously important to them. I'll take it and get them to follow me. And then what? Teresa asked. She came around the bed and touched his arm, her face a mask of contorted concern. What do you think you're going to do when they catch up to you? I have no idea. I'm making this up as I go. Maybe Lazy's got a plan. And you're going to do this with one good leg? Teresa asked. Chad raised the questionable limb, winced. Don't worry about me. I'm upright and ambulatory. Why does it have to be you? Why does it always have to be you? Teresa asked. Well, am I going to ask you to be the bait? Any of you? Teresa said nothing. No one did. Carolyn had begun to zone out, vision tunneling. She couldn't force herself to look at Greg's face or the wound she was covering, but instead fixed on his chest, the same place where she'd laid her head and fallen asleep the last few nights. God, she wanted that feeling again. So here's what I'm thinking. I'll head up to the top deck and have this little bastard with me. Chad wrapped the statue with his knuckles. I'll go the way his men came from. Draw them away from the two of you. Carolyn looked at the other two women Chad was referring to. She wanted out of the room to get away from Greg's anguished face. Not because she didn't care. She did. And was shocked by how much she already cared about Greg. But this was often her way of dealing with trauma. Run from it. Wait, what about me? Shouldn't I go? I mean, he's... Stay here with the critic. Keep him awake and talking. Lock the door, push something in front of it. Chad retrieved the pistol from his waistband. After ejecting the clip and checking the remaining bullets, he gave the gun to his wife. And Carolyn watched the woman take the firearm like someone who'd had experience with one. Chad picked up the totem, cradled it like a running back, then kissed Teresa on the cheek. She said nothing, as if she were used to her husband making up his mind, and no matter how she protested, it wouldn't make a difference. Once I'm out the door, give me five minutes. If you don't hear shouting or shooting, then get moving. As he passed her, Chad put a hand on Marie's shoulder. I need you to watch my lady's back, okay? Marie nodded. Carolyn couldn't imagine what was going through that woman's head. With that... Chad shrugged his shoulders, put his ear to the door, and listened. Satisfied, he slipped into the hallway without looking back. When the door closed behind him, 
Teresa went to the same spot and listened like her husband had. Murray tossed the ship's directory back onto the desk and went to join Teresa when Carolyn spoke. Marie, uh, are you okay? I mean, with everything? I don't know what I am. She had no idea why. Maybe it was another way of distracting herself from Greg. But Carolyn heard herself say, You know this isn't your fault. None of it is. Tell me that again tomorrow, Marie said. It already is tomorrow, Teresa said. Carolyn and Marie both looked to where the woman was pointing, and through the balcony doors, they could see the subtle brightening on the horizon. Marie, you ready? The pair stood in the open doorway for a moment, looking back at Carolyn and Greg, and no one spoke, because what was there to say? It wasn't until Carolyn was alone with Greg that she steeled herself. She finally looked back at his face. The man's eyes were closed, and Carolyn forced herself to lean in and make sure he was still breathing. When he saw his wife, a rush of memory overtook him. Sophia sat, unmoving on one of the bar stools, the same she'd chosen during the trivia match inside the Make and Waves bar. A pair of emergency lights set the ambiance, while the woman's silhouette was crafted from the candles lit before her. While Laszlo lingered in the entryway, he was struck by just how little had changed since that moment he first saw her. One leg was crossed over the other, giving half the room a view of her slender thigh through the slit in her dress. Her hair, soft like wheat, curled just above her shoulders, and though he couldn't see from behind, he knew that she was spinning whatever glass she held in her hand. A nervous tick of hers, Sophia would stare into the miniature glass carousel as if the answer could be found at the bottom. When Laszlo slinked behind the bar, he said, Do you know when I made the decision to marry you? Zofia looked up from her glass, slowly, as if this were preordained, part of some cosmic script, and she couldn't help but smile. After I took you to bed for the first time? No. It was the first moment I saw you, sitting at the bar, very much like you are now. I hadn't even seen your face yet, but I knew. Laszlo now stood in front of her. He placed his pistol on the bar between them and slung a dry bar towel over his shoulder. I remember trying to figure out a way to speak to you. Sophia said, I remember you lying to me about being a bartender. I needed your attention. Women give this to bartenders. Well, how did you do that? You never told me. The man working that night owed me a favor. I collected. We're a long way from that bar, Lazy. A long way from Romania, Laszlo said, and turned to study the wall of liquor bottles. The handgun was now only within Sophia's grasp, yet she didn't reach for it. It does not look like they have Suiki here. I have drank enough of it in my life, Sophia said. Will you settle for vodka? Grabbing a bottle from the top shelf and a glass for himself, Laszlo poured them both a shot. It wasn't until they lifted, muttered a communal toast, and swallowed that they made eye contact. I want you to know, Sophia said, that I never meant to hurt you. I do love you, Lazy. Don't say it. You do not need to. This was not about you, Zofia said. About you and I. Don't. I don't want to hear it. We can just go back like nothing happened. Let whatever you have done stay here at sea. There's nothing to go back to. 
This is what you do not understand. He is rising. My love, you do not believe this shit. You cannot. How? You've always been the smart one. Lazy filled up the glasses once more, but only Lazy took his shot. I will not argue you, Sophia said, but this is not about intelligence. It is belief. This is something I feel in my heart. When my hints failed to show you, I thought that bringing you here to the final days, you might be spared. And it still might not be too late. How do you mean? Where is it, Lazy? Where is what? Before she could answer, the door to the bar swung open again. Lazy reached for the gun, but Sophia was faster. She pulled the piece off the bar top and out of sight. Laszlo, 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 Donnie Frederick said. You have been a real bee in my bonnet. You know that? Fuck your bonnet. Lazy filled his shot glass again. I can promise you a quick death, Donnie said. He was next to Sophia now and making a show of draping his arm over her shoulders. Just tell us where it is. Why do you need stupid statue? Your god must be more powerful than that. Why I... Donnie said, then stopped, and began running his fingers back and forth on Sophia's collarbone. Why we want it back is none of your concern. Just tell me and I, I won't make you suffer, even though I cannot tell you how much I want to. I don't have it, Lazy said. Of course not. So who does? A friend, Lazy said, a grin creeping on his lips. With a scoff, Donnie said, You don't strike me as the type to have many of those. Then you haven't met the Iceman. Zofia and Donnie both turned to the sound of knuckles rapping on glass. In the open-air corridor between the Macon Waves bar and the stage where Donnie had tried his hand at magic, stood Chad McStafford. Clothes soaked from the rain, one leg bloodied. He gave a little wave and then uncurled his other arm. He lifted the stone totem with both hands. Donnie's fingers dug into Sophia's chest and she squealed. The trio inside the bar were frozen, as if trying to figure out what would happen next. Whether Chad would throw the statue through the window or smash it between his feet. But the man did neither. Instead, Chad cradled the idol once again, turned on his heels, and ran through the rain toward the rising sun. You just heard another episode of The Ghost Modernist. Thank you so much for listening. Follow me on Instagram for updates about the show, maybe some mentions about what's going to be happening next season, and pictures of our ridiculous life here in Costa Rica, at The Ghost Modernist. And please, if you've got time, write a few words about the show on Apple and Spotify. I love hearing what you think, and then I can give you guys a shout-out. The theme music for today's episode of The Ghost Modernist was provided by Atrium Carcheri. As always, remember, there are two types of people in this world, the haunters and the haunted. Which one are you?